You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Welcome to the DNA ID 2022 Year in Review episode. Listeners might have noticed that this season, I covered a lot more cases that were adjudicated. This is because the trials are finally happening for all the guys that have been arrested since the advent of forensic genealogy. So while it may seem that forensic genealogy is identifying fewer deceased perpetrators and more live ones, that's not necessarily the case. It's just that now I'm able to cover some cases in which there were arrests because the legal process has concluded and access to case information is no longer under wraps. Now that many trials have taken place on cases which were solved by forensic genealogy, it's very important to note that in not one single instance has the use of forensic genealogy been thrown out by a judge. Forensic genealogy has been challenged by several desperate defendants, But in every case, the judge has become enlightened to the fact that forensic genealogy is just a means to generate a lead and has upheld its use. Furthermore, in the murder trials of defendants identified through forensic genealogy, no one has been acquitted. The oft-used defense of, I had consensual sex with her but I didn't kill her, has not swayed any juries to date. The prosecution has almost always managed to show that death of the victim was nearly simultaneous with the depositing of semen and or has introduced circumstantial evidence supporting the forensic evidence, such as the offender's blood at the crime scene. The use of forensic genealogy to generate a lead followed by law enforcement to arrest or identify the offender has held up in court time and again, because in the end, A primary DNA sample matching to the unknown offender's DNA is always what is relied on to press charges. It's also worth noting that in several cases I covered this season, the defendants ultimately took plea deals rather than go to trial, because the DNA evidence against them was undeniable. Now let's look at a couple of case updates. As longtime listeners will recall, Jerry Lynn Burns was convicted of the 1979 murder of Michelle Martinko in Iowa, a case I covered in Season 1, Episode 5. Burns has taken his appeal all the way up to the Iowa Supreme Court. Oral arguments on his appeal occurred on September 30, 2022, and we are awaiting the justices' ruling on the issues. Burns' attorneys argued that DNA contains confidential health and genetic information, that could be used by police for multiple unconstitutional purposes. And therefore, everyone has a reasonable expectation of privacy in their DNA, including unavoidably shed DNA, 
which is DNA everyone leaves behind just by existing. The reason Burns' attorneys are focusing on the concept of unavoidably shed DNA is that they're trying to sever it from materials subject to the abandonment doctrine, the long-upheld premise that we do not have privacy rights in materials abandoned in public. They argue that because we cannot help shedding DNA, it is not a choice to make that private material public, and therefore, the abandonment doctrine does not apply. So, by snagging Burns' DNA from a drinking straw and analyzing it, police violated his constitutional rights. Instead, they should have obtained a search warrant. Burns' attorneys have an uphill battle to convince the justices that their position is the correct one. Under Iowa law, law enforcement is allowed to use genetic material to identify people in the course of a criminal investigation. The state's representative, Assistant Iowa Attorney General Tyler Buller, argued that nearly 150 years of criminal forensics precedent would have to be thrown out if the abandonment doctrine were so restricted. He pointed out that DNA is the same as, quote, the bloody bat found at the crime scene which has blood, hair, and fibers on it, used to identify the suspect. And he pointed out that when police obtained a primary sample from Burns, they had a warrant to do so. And as we all remember, it was a match. Some questions from the justices indicated that they were inclined to side with the state, but as I said, that remains to be seen when they hand down their decision. Just to be clear, though, none of this tends to exonerate Jerry Lynn Burns. His DNA still matched that found in Michelle Martinko's car. In another update, Alan Lee Phillips was sentenced recently for the murders of Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee, a case I covered this season in episode 43. On November 7th, Phillips was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Before Phillips was sentenced, prosecutors read a statement from Bobby Joe's husband, Jeff, that said in part, quote, Alan Lee Phillips is a despicable and evil being. I pray that the lives he has so terribly affected can find their own personal solace and closure, end quote. Annette's mother wrote a statement as well, which was also read by prosecutors, quote, Annette was so beautiful, so loving, and everyone loved being around her. I miss my daughter. I was never able to see her grow into a woman, start a career, or have a family. But I can finally be at peace knowing that the man who took all of that away will be going away to a place he deserves to be. I'm 89 years old, and I've waited 40 years for this day to come. Phillips's lawyer says he is innocent and that they intend to appeal his conviction. Okay, so as I did last year, I'll do a little roundup of the patterns observed in the 23 cases I covered this season. The first category is stranger crimes of opportunity. In these cases, our victims are just at the wrong place at the wrong time and are preyed on by someone who is, to our knowledge, not known to them in any way. They are Kelly Ann Prosser, killed by Harold Warren Jarrell in a crime of opportunity. Virginia Freeman killed by James Otto Earhart in what appears to have been a planned sexual assault of a generic victim. Kathleen O'Brien Doyle, killed by Dennis Bowman. He may have seen her at a local mall and followed her home, but he did not know her. Teresa Selecki, killed by Charles Lane Morgan in a crime of opportunity. Sophie Sergi, killed by Stephen Downs in a crime no one can make sense of. Maurice Chivarella, killed by James Paul Fort in a crime of opportunity. Gladys Hensley, Janice Dickinson, and Geraldine Tuhi, 
killed by John Charles Bolsinger in Crimes of Opportunity, where he selected vulnerable victims' homes to break into. Sherry Black, killed by Adam Antonio Spencer Durborough in what police believe was an impulsive crime of opportunity. Kim Bryant and Diana Hansen, both killed by Johnny Blake Peterson in Crimes of Opportunity. Anna Marie Lavka, killed by Jerry Walter McFadden in A Crime of Opportunity, although he may have followed her home from Meyer's grocery store. Laura Purchase, killed by Thomas Elvin Darnell under unclear circumstances. Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee, killed by Alan Lee Phillips in Crimes of Opportunity. Laketa Gunther, Julie Green, and Awana Patton, killed by Robert Hayes, who hired them for sex. Janet Love, killed by Ray Anthony Chapa in a crime police believe was a planned sexual assault gone wrong. That makes 14 of the 23 cases that were stranger on stranger crimes. In a couple of these, it's apparent that there was a sort of commercial relationship between the killer and the victim. Robert Hayes was believed to be a client of his victims, and James Otto Earhart posed as a potential client of Virginia Freeman. Also, investigators believe that Laura Purchase was a sex worker and Thomas Darnell said that he paid her for sex. So, while they still qualify as stranger crimes, they aren't so much crimes of opportunity as crimes that arose out of transactional circumstances. Also, note that I probably have to include Risa Trexler, who was killed by Curtis Edward Blair, in the crime of opportunity category. She did not know him, but it seems likely he knew that she was at her grandparents' home alone, which indicates that he was watching and had specifically targeted her. Then there are some victims who may have had a relationship or acquaintance with their killers, even though we might not know for certain what their connection was. I'm including these in the unknown relationship category. They are Judy Nesbitt, killed by Kenneth Elwin Marks. Police believe that Marks knew exactly who Judy was since he was friends with her son and that he selected her deliberately. Lisa Ziegert, killed by Gary Shara. We just don't know whether Lisa ever met Shara, but there is some indication that they may have moved in the same circles and attended some of the same social gatherings. Police believe that he knew who she was and she was not a totally random target. Troy and LaDonna French, killed by Jose Alvarez Jr., I'm including them in this category because while it's not apparent whether they had ever met Jose, he clearly knew who they were, since he was the brother of their son-in-law, and he chose to sneak into their home and watch them on the regular. Darlene Krashock, killed by Michael White. I'm torn about this one. To this day, we don't know whether Michael White was one of the men Darlene was talking to in the bar she was at before she was killed. And we also don't know whether they ever crossed paths at the army base where they were both stationed. It's very possible that they were acquainted, and it's possible they were total strangers. We just don't know. Michelle Wyatt, killed by John Patrick Hogan. Hogan was buddies with the guy who lived across the street from Michelle, and police suspect that Hogan had met her before when he was visiting his buddy, who was friendly with Michelle. Then there's the small group of victims who were definitely acquainted with their killers. They are Subir Chatterjee, killed by Martin Telles. Telez was a regular client of Subir's for years, and Subir trusted him. Andrea Bowman, killed by Dennis Bowman. Bowman was her stepfather. Linda Slayton, killed by Joe Mills. According to Mills' own words, he and Linda had met once when he dropped her son off after football practice. He was her son's football coach. 
Cliff and Linda Bernhardt, killed by Cecil Caldwell. Caldwell worked with Linda on a daily basis. Police believe that she invited him over for dinner, and he killed her and her husband Cliff because he was fixated on Linda. Now let's discuss the killers. They ran the gamut this past season from one-and-done killers to serial killers or spree killers to those who are suspected of having more victims in addition to the ones linked to them through forensic genealogy. The killers we discussed this season who appeared to have killed just once are Stephen Downs, who killed Sophie Sergi in the dorm bathroom at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He doesn't seem to have killed anyone else and went on to become a nurse. Joe Mills, who climbed in Linda Slayton's window and raped and strangled her with a hanger. There is no indication that he ever killed anyone else. He may have been fixated on Linda specifically. Martin Telles, who shot Subir Chatterjee in the course of a robbery. He was deemed legitimately remorseful, and I'd bet my life he never killed anyone other than Subir. Ray Chapa, who hid in Janet Love's closet and raped and shot her. Police are looking into whether he committed any other homicides, but so far have found none. They believe shooting Janet was not the original plan, as it didn't fit his M.O. Curtis Blair, who raped and stabbed teenage Risa Trexler in her grandparents' house. He hasn't been linked to any other murders, but this crime was so random, impulsive, and violent, it wouldn't be surprising if he had more victims. Michael White, who strangled Darlene Crashock with a coat hanger and left her naked, bitten body in the snow. He claims he didn't kill her, much less anyone else, and police have not attributed any other victims to him. Charles Morgan, who, it is believed, abducted Teresa Selecki in her own vehicle and left her body along the roadside. He died very soon after his victim, and there's no indication he killed anyone else. Police believe Teresa was truly a crime of opportunity. Kenneth Marks, who shot Judy Nesbitt on her boat. He was never linked to any other crimes of note. The detectives believe that he killed Judy in a panic to silence her screams aboard the Felicidad, and there's no indication he ever did it again. Gary Shara, who abducted Lisa Ziegert from a gift shop and raped and murdered her in a clearing in a wooded area. He confessed to the crime after police asked for a DNA sample. As much as I find him repellent, I don't get the feeling he also killed others. John Hogan gained entry to Michelle Wyatt's condo and raped and strangled her with the phone cord. Although he was responsible for other crimes, none rose to the level of homicide that we know of. Adam Durborough, who stabbed Sherry Black to death after sexually assaulting her in the bookstore. He has not been linked to any more victims. Jose Alvarez Jr., who killed Troy and LaDonna French. Alvarez doesn't really qualify as a one-and-done killer because he had two victims, but They were both killed simultaneously in one incident, and I believe strongly that this was his only murder. The same goes for Cecil Caldwell, who killed both Linda Bernhardt and her husband Cliff in one night. Police seem to believe that Cliff's sole target was Linda, and he hasn't been linked to any other victims. James Fort abducted Maurice Chevarella as she walked to school and raped and strangled the little girl. Fort was linked to another attack on a young woman whom he beat so badly she had to be hospitalized, and she believed he was trying to kill her, but he has no other known murders on his record.
Fall is here and class is back in session. It's a busy time for students and faculty, and with a new school year comes new adventures, new experiences, and new goals to achieve. But as much promise and excitement as the fall semester brings, there can also be a dark side to it, one in which the unthinkable can happen. I'm Amy Slashberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. As educators and criminologists, we teach, research, write, and podcast about victims, offenders, and the issues that surround our criminal justice system. Amy and I have both worked in the field of criminal justice for 20 years, myself in law enforcement and Amy in the mental health field. In Campus Killings, we'll dive into some of the most shocking and tragic murders to happen on school grounds, and we'll provide our analysis on the cases we cover as both educators and trained criminologists. We'll discuss what went wrong and what could have been done differently to prevent the tragic outcome. Campus Killings is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Campus Killings. Then there are the killers who killed multiple victims in more than one incident. These are James Otto Earhart, who was executed in Texas for killing nine-year-old Candy Kirtland, Robert Hayes, who is believed to have killed no fewer than five women, Alan Lee Phillips, who shot two women in one night but is suspected to have more victims, Thomas Darnell, who killed Laura Purchase after hiring her as a sex worker, and I believe very likely also killed Laura Donez in a crime that almost exactly mirrored what Darnell did to Laura Purchase. Jerry Walter McFadden, who went on a murder spree and was executed in Texas for the deaths of Suzanne Harrison, Gina Turner, and Brian Boone. Johnny Blake Peterson, who killed Diana Hansen and Kim Bryant in, and possibly several others in the Las Vegas area. Charles Bolsinger, who preyed upon the three victims we covered and possibly others. And Dennis Bowman, who killed stranger Kathleen O'Brien and his own adopted daughter. It's always interesting to see how these killers' lives end up, right? In the ones I covered this season who were arrested, five took plea deals. Martin Tellez, Gary Shara, Jose Alvarez, Dennis Bowman, and Adam Durborough. Thomas Darnell didn't get that far since he died in custody. Five other killers were convicted after trials. Robert Hayes, Alan Phillips, Joseph Mills, Stephen Downs, and Michael White. Of the ones who were deceased when their identities were uncovered by forensic genealogy, two were executed long beforehand, James Earhart and Jerry McFadden. One died in a car accident, Charles Morgan, was only 24 when he died. Three died young of drug overdoses, John Hogan at age 42, John Bolsinger at age 30, and Johnny Blake Peterson at age 32. Looks like all the Johns this season were addicts. Six died relatively young of disease. Ray Chapa of cancer at age 54. Kenneth Marks of cancer at age 44. Cecil Caldwell at age 59 of suspected heart disease. James Ford at age 38 of a suspected heart attack. Harold Jarrell succumbed to an unknown illness at age 67. And Curtis Blair died of heart failure at age 60. One died in his 70s of multiple natural causes. Thomas Darnell. He's the only one who really lived to old age. I'm going to talk briefly about two other cases of interest, cases I've not covered but I think listeners will find interesting. In early November, the Ohio Supreme Court handed down a ruling that overturned the conviction of a man who had been apprehended after forensic genealogy was used to identify him. Here's what happened in the case. In 1993, a 19-year-old young woman named Anita was driving from her home in Quincy, Ohio, to her night shift job. 
A man in a truck pulled in front of her and blocked her car at the intersection of County Road 35 and Township Road 77 in Logan County. The man opened Anita's car door and forced her into his truck at gunpoint. He drove her to a remote location and forced her to perform oral sex on him. Then he drove her to another location, took her out of the truck, cut her throat, and left her to die in a ditch. But Anita didn't die. She played dead until the man drove away and then staggered to a nearby house for help. She was treated for a deep wound to her throat, but she was able to relay a description of her attacker. She also described his vehicle down to the color, make, model, and first two letters of its Ohio license plate. Anita's clothing was collected as evidence. It's unclear whether an oral swab was taken, but her shirt proved to have semen on it from her assailant. However, it was still early in the DNA era, and a profile of the suspect was unable to be developed at that time. In 2014, her shirt was sent to the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation for updated testing, and the following year, its lab was able to develop a profile which was entered into CODIS. There was no hit to an identified offender, but there was a hit to another case. This was a 1992 case which had occurred in Sydney, Ohio. The Shelby County victim, whose initials are SL, told police that she was walking home from work when a man forced her into his truck at gunpoint, drove her to a remote area, and raped her. She reported the crime, and eventually the evidence from her rape kit made its way into CODIS in the form of an unidentified offender profile, and it matched to Anita's assailant. In 2019, the Logan County Sheriff's Office contracted with Advanced DNA's Amanda Reno to perform forensic genealogy after a SNP profile of the attacker was obtained. Amanda was quickly able to locate a second cousin of the offender, a woman named Judy, and within 24 hours of receiving the SNP profile, was able to flesh out the family tree and hone in on four brothers who lived in Logan County, the Bortree brothers. Based on factors such as age, location, criminal history, and physical description, investigators narrowed the pool down to two of the brothers. The DNA from a cigarette butt discarded by one of them, Ralph Bortree, matched the DNA of Anita and S.L.'s rapist. The chances were less than one in one trillion that the DNA belonged to any other person. Bortree was arrested in August of 2019. Once they knew who Bortree was, investigators were able to connect him to two similar cases in Shelby County that occurred in 1993 and 1995. Both were abduction and rape cases like Anita's and S.L.'s. I'm not sure whether there was DNA in those cases, but the two victims were able to identify Ralph Bortree as the man who sexually assaulted them. But here's where things go off the rails. Ralph Bortree could not be charged for the Shelby County rapes of S.L. or the other two victims. The statute of limitations on the rapes and kidnappings had expired. However, Logan County Prosecutor Eric Stewart felt confident that they could nail Bortree for Anita's case. He charged Bortree with attempted aggravated murder, a first-degree felony. In November 2020, a Logan County jury found Bortree guilty of attempted aggravated murder, they deliberated for only an hour. Judge Kevin Bragg sentenced him to the maximum of 11 years in prison. But Bortree appealed. The case went all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court, and Bortree's conviction was thrown out. Here's why. Bortree's appeal was based on the statute of limitations in Ohio. He said his constitutional rights were violated by the state bringing the attempted aggravated murder charge 20 years too late because 
the six-year statute of limitations had expired two decades earlier. Ohio's statute limiting the amount of time in which charges can be brought specifies that the statute of limitations for first-degree felonies is six years unless there is a specified exemption making it longer or non-existent. Exemptions are listed for aggravated murder and murder. There are no statutes of limitations for those things. But Anita didn't die. There was no murder. Therefore, Bortree's attorney argued before the court the statute of limitations applied to attempted aggravated murder and attempted murder. Those were not among the carve-outs set forth by the Ohio legislature. Quote, The General Assembly has never stated that these should have any other statute of limitations than the default for a felony of six years, Bortree's attorney said in court. The prosecutor representing the state argued that attempted murder is included with murder in being exempt from the statute of limitations. He pointed out that the statute of limitations for attempted burglary is 20 years. It would be absurd for attempted murder to be limited to six years. In its November 2022 ruling, the Ohio Supreme Court disagreed. Attempted aggravated murder technically falls under the general statute setting the limitations period at six years, the court ruled, because attempted first-degree felonies were not specifically exempted. In its ruling, which was a unanimous 7-0 decision, Justice Michael P. Donnelly stated in the court's majority opinion, quote, because the General Assembly is the final arbiter of public policy, judicial policy preferences may not be used to override valid legislative enactments. We are, unfortunately, duty-bound to reverse the judgment of the Third District Court of Appeals. Under the particularly heinous set of facts in this case, the six-year statute of limitations that applies to attempted aggravated murder and attempted murder works a grave injustice. However, we have no authority to rewrite the statute. End quote. As a result of this ruling, Ralph Bortree will be a free man, if he's not already, released to offend again despite his victimization of four known victims and attempted murder of one. It's interesting that his conviction being overturned had nothing to do with forensic genealogy and everything to do with a poorly crafted and offender-friendly law enacted by the Ohio legislature. Do you obsess over cold cases? Do you go down endless rabbit holes on online forums searching for clues to solve your pet case? Are you an amateur sleuth? If so, we'd like to invite you to check out our podcast, Citizen Detective. I'm Mike Morford. I'm Alex Ralph. And I'm Dr. Lee Meller. On our show, we work with citizen detectives to explore perplexing mysteries. Citizen Detective is out right now, and new episodes drop every other Saturday. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Citizen Detective. There's one more case I want to talk about that also has an element of unfairness to it, at least in my view. This isn't a new case. It was solved in 2019. But the investigators who solved it, the Windsor Police Service's Major Crimes Unit, recently were awarded the Ontario Homicide Investigators Association's 2022 Linda Shaw Memorial Award. This annual award recognizes outstanding performance in homicide investigating. The Windsor Unit was recognized for its work in solving the 1971 murder of six-year-old Lubica Topic in Ontario, Canada. Lubica was playing outside her house on Droyard Road with her brother on May 14, 1971, when a stranger came up and offered her $8 to help him with a chore. The man gave Lubica's 8-year-old brother a dime to ride his bike away. 
Lubitsa was last seen walking down the sidewalk holding the hand of an unknown man. She was found in an alley behind Hickory Road mere hours later, her leg broken and her teeth smashed in. She'd been raped and murdered. Windsor police investigated the case for decades, tracking more than 700 persons of interest. They finally resorted to forensic genealogy in one of the first uses of the new technique in Canada. And it worked. In December 2019, the Windsor investigators held what was described in the media as an emotional press conference, announcing that they finally knew who had killed Little Dubica 48 years earlier. Who was he? They wouldn't say. Lubica's killer, a 22-year-old who lived in her neighborhood, has never been publicly named. He died shortly before investigators learned his identity, and they refused to reveal his name because he cannot have his day in court. The police cited Canada's Municipal Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act as the reason they were not releasing the killer's name. I'm not familiar with this act, but just in looking at its provisions, it states that a government entity, quote, may refuse to disclose a record if the disclosure could reasonably be expected to F. Deprive a person of the right to a fair trial or impartial adjudication. End quote. I assume this is the section the police are relying on. But note that the law says they may refuse to disclose. This seems like a choice, and they are choosing this man's privacy over the public interest in knowing a child killer's name. I found an article in the Windsor Star that reported on some very strong opposition to this decision. The publication interviewed Michael Arntfeldt, a former police officer and renowned criminology professor at the University of Western Ontario. Arnfeldt said the closure of the case did merit kudos to the investigators. It's one of the oldest cold cases in North America, and he said, quote, it's a tremendous achievement, end quote. But he said of the agency's refusal to name the perpetrator, quote, are you telling me a sexual murderer of a child posthumously has more rights than the public right to know who this is? Here are people, police investigators and citizens, who may very well benefit from knowing the name and being able to assist in other investigations. He went on to say pointedly, quote, You cannot libel a dead person, and a dead person does not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. End quote. Per the Star, quote, Windsor Police Spokesman Sergeant Steve Betteridge said Monday that under the Municipal Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, a person maintains privacy rights for 30 years after death, end quote. Arnfeldt countered, saying, quote, You're talking about someone with a number of obvious paraphilia, sexual deviations, a sadistic, homicidal pedophile. This is really the optimal age for commencing a, a criminal career in serial sexual homicides. So those who begin at that prime age... I don't know of any who would then just completely stop. It's not necessarily that they'll murder anybody else. I think there's a good indication, though, that he would have. But he would have been involved in other crimes, sexual crimes included. End quote. Of course, listeners will not be surprised to hear that I come down on the side of Arnfeldt. Revealing this child killer's name to the public cannot harm him since he's dead, and it would very likely result in tips from the public connecting him to additional cases. He died in his 70s. Nearly 50 years elapsed in which he probably committed more heinous crimes. It's a travesty, in my opinion, that he hasn't been outed, especially since Windsor Detective Scott Chapman said at the press conference, quote, This man's DNA matched separate sources of DNA from the crime scene. Based on the nature of the DNA and where it was located, we are certain that he was the person responsible, end quote. For some reason, since Lubica's killer's name is being protected, 
It doesn't really seem as though she's being given the justice she waited for for so long. When the offenders are deceased, all the victim's families have is the satisfaction of seeing the killer named as such. In this case, even that was taken from them. Finally, before I wrap up the 2022 season, I want to thank the listeners for the terrific support we received this year. The show nearly doubled in terms of listenership in the calendar year, reaching more than 1.3 million downloads. We started a Patreon that helps to pay for the costs of police reports and records that we obtain via public records requests. And I have an exciting announcement to make. Starting with the new season in January 2023, the show will feature recent Jane or John Doe cases that have been solved by forensic genealogy. The Doe ID episodes will be very short mini-episodes that will appear every other week, alternating with regular DNA ID episodes. Featuring solved Doe cases will be a great reminder to listeners of how very important it is that they submit their DNA to the open-source databases and opt-in for law enforcement searching. Murder cases begin with the identification of the victim. Without that, the victims are twice denied justice. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNA ID Podcast on Facebook. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.